Hey everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Hayek Program Podcast. While you're listening to this episode, if you think of someone who you know would benefit from listening to it, we'd love to have you share the episode with them. Maybe as you're grabbing lunch together, or even just with a quick text. Word of mouth is the primary way that we grow the reach of the podcast, and we'd be honored to have your help as we work to provide these conversations for other lifelong learners. Thanks once again for listening to the podcast, and with that, let's get to the episode. You're listening to the Hayek Program Podcast. This podcast includes audio from lectures, interviews, and discussions from scholars and visitors of the F.A. Hayek Program for Advanced Study in Philosophy, Politics, and Economics at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. To learn more about the Hayek program, visit hayek.mercatus.org. To learn about graduate student fellowship opportunities with the Mercatus Center at George Mason University, for students at Mason as well as at universities across the globe, please visit students.mercatus.org. Good afternoon. It's October 19th, 2022. I'm Rosalino Candela, Senior Fellow with the F.A. Hayek program. Welcome to the Hayek program podcast. I'm very fortunate today to be joined by Dr. Don Boudreau, who will be talking about the intellectual history of the economic theory of monopoly and antitrust policy in the United States. Don is a professor of economics here at George Mason University, as well as the Martha and Nestle Getchell Chair, as well as a senior fellow with the F.A. Hayek program here at the Mercatus Center. Don, welcome. Thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. This is a fun topic. Now, I'm really excited to talk to you today about one of the fields of economics that you're an expert in, which is namely the theory of the firm, also known as industrial organization, as it's known today, and antitrust policy. Now, in recent years, we've been entering an intellectual climate in which there has been a fear, not that it's new, but a, a, a new type of fear of monopoly power across all sorts of industries, among them being what are known today as platform economies. We're talking about the Amazons, the Googles, the Facebooks of the world. It's regarded that because the large size of these firms and the degree to which they are concentrated or grabbing market share, you might say, that there are these new, renewed justifications for antitrust policy, you might say, given that potential for monopoly power. So I just wanted to ask you how this all got started in the sense that what is the history and the origins of the regulation of monopolies, also known as antitrust regulation in the United States? On what basis was it first justified when it first originated? So the United States is a pioneer in lots of things. Unfortunately, we're also a pioneer in antitrust legislation. It's commonly said that antitrust began in 1890 with the passage at the federal level of the Sherman Antitrust Act. That's not quite right. Antitrust in the United... It did begin in the U.S., but it began a year earlier. It began at the state level in 1889, when a number of states pass state-level antitrust statutes. And uh, the forces, the political forces that led to the enactment of these state antitrust statutes uh, was intimately tied with the political forces that led one year later to the enactment of, of the Sherman Act. I forget now exactly how, how many. It was something like 12 or 13 states had enacted their own antitrust statutes before the July 2nd, uh, 1890 enactment of the Sherman Act, and then a handful of other states in the few months after that also enacted state antitrust statutes. Um, the, the, the short story, well, it's not a short story, but to make it as short as possible, 
so we don't take up the entire time here, is right, you know, immediately after the Civil War, of course, we get the transcontinental railroads. <clears throat> and not just the transcontinental railroads. Railroads were expanding. We get the telegraph. Uh, we get the telephone. And so communications and transportation are becoming a lot less costly. For the first time, the, the American continent uh, becomes a nationwide market, or, for, for, uh, or, or at least large regional markets tied together by the railroads and the telegraph. And so uh, some firms are able to take advantage of economies of scale that were simply impossible to do before. As a result, of course, some smaller firms that had been around for generations, those types of operations, smaller firms, uh, they were outcompeted by these larger, more entrepreneurial firms that were taking advantage of the larger economies of scale. A lot of people think it was John D. Rockefeller's Standard Oil Company that, that was the, the big, big uh, bugaboo. Uh, it was certainly mentioned, but it wasn't oil at all that had much to do with the actual enactment of the state antitrust statutes or the federal antitrust statute. It was butchers and cattlemen, of all people. Um, we take it for granted today that when we want to buy fresh meat, we go to the supermarket and there's the fresh meat. Uh, but until the 1880s, uh, if you ate fresh meat in America, that animal was slaughtered uh, uh, very soon and very near where you bought it because there was no refrigeration. Uh, so you ate meat if, if, if it wasn't immediately just slaughtered, it was salted, or it was it was it was canned, it was smoked. Americans like fresh meat, and so uh, uh, a great entrepreneur, Gustavus Swift, he was a butcher from Boston, uh, descended, I think, from like some of the early Puritan settlers. Actually, uh, Gustavus Swift got this bright idea that he would centralize butchering. This is a completely un new, un unheard of thing to do. He moves to Boston in the 17 in the 1870s, and he 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 take, takes an entrepreneurial gamble. He arranges uh, to uh, experiment with a refrigerated railroad car. Uh, his wasn't the first, but it was the first that was economically viable. And uh, so he starts slaughtering cattle, pigs and sheep too, but mostly cattle in Chicago in the very late 1870s, and starts shipping these things by refrigerated railroad car all across the country. Butchers, local butchers, who had, a, 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 you know, they were, the, they were the, the one source of fresh meat until that time, since ancient times, many of them were put out of business, and they didn't like it. And so they complained about the unfair competition from uh, what soon became, came to be called the Chicago Meat Packers. Gustavus Swift was very successful. He immediately had lots of competitors, uh, Philip Armour and, 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 and two other uh, uh, producers in Chicago. Uh, also, the, 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 the cattlemen who would supply the local butchers, their markets were upset because the, the, now you had, you had the stockyards in Chicago. Cattle raising became different than it had been earlier. And so uh, a lot of independent cattlemen lost their markets. A lot of local butchers lost their markets. They formed trade associations, special interest groups, uh, and, and they were very loud and they complained about their loss of market. Uh, and in 18, 
1988, I believe, uh, the U.S. Senate created something called the Vest Commission. It was named after Senator George Vest of Missouri uh, to uh, uh, look into these complaints. And the Vest Commission would, would, would travel around the country uh, at uh, meeting at the conventions of the Independent Cattlemen's Association and the National Butchers Protective Association. I think I have those names right. Uh, and they were very sympathetic. Uh, these uh, cattlemen and butchers did get the ear of a lot of state legislators, particularly in the Mississippi Valley, and that's where the first antitrust statutes emerged. Interestingly, a lot of these antitrust statutes explicitly had provisions that outlawed price cutting, because that was the, that was the complaint, uh, that, that the, the, the complaint wasn't about high prices. The complaint was that uh, Gustafa Swift and his uh, fellow Chicago meatpackers were pushing down the price, of meat, and they were. The price of, of, of fresh meat in the United States in 1886 was 30% lower, in the real price, 30% lower than it was in 1881. In five years, it had dramatically fallen. Fresh meat, for the first time, became affordable by ordinary Americans. Uh, and so Americans were literally eating it up. Uh, but, but the butchers didn't like it. Uh, there was there was no, there, were, there were reports at the time. Some of the propaganda was that oh well, you're, yes you're eating this meat slaughtered in Chicago, but that's really really dangerous. Uh, I've looked at the the uh, records of the time. There's no evidence that the that the meat that was slaughtered centrally was any uh, uh, less safe than was the meat that people had gotten from local local butchers. Uh, anyway, for a variety of reasons that are too too intricate to get into in this discussion. Uh, the Vest Commission, its members were closely associated, closely aligned with the National Butchers Protective Association and the Independent Cattlemen's Association. They took that sympathy for antitrust back to Washington. Senator John Sherman, the younger brother of William Tecumseh, Senator John Sherman, uh, his principal interest was the tariff. He was a Republican. Republicans of the era were were famously protectionist. We're, Republicans are returning to that root, those roots today. And John, Senator John Sherman was the was uh, he knew that in the Senate he would soon have to take up the battle of what would later be called the McKinley Tariff. Uh, Representative William McKinley of Ohio, Senator John Sherman of Ohio, they were both Republican protectionists. Uh, the McKinley Tariff, which was enacted in October of 1890 was at the time either the biggest or certainly one of the biggest tariff increases in American history. It was an overtly piece of protectionist legislation. A number of people by this time had recognized that, you know, tariff, well, you know, they, they, they say it, they're good for the economy, but the, they are, as they came to be called, the mother of monopolies. So you had a lot of economists, you had a lot of, 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 of classical liberal uh, newspaper reporters and pundits pointing out the dangers and monopolization of, of the tariff. And someone went up, I don't know who, but went up to John Sherman and said, you know, people are accusing you because, you know, you're a leader, you are the leader in the Senate, one of the leaders in the Senate for tariff protection, uh, uh, and, and, and they're accusing you because of your support for tariffs of being pro-monopolist. Well, we have this antitrust bill that, 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 that we're considering uh, that is being pushed by members of the Vest Commission um, uh, it, it, the members of the Vest Commission, I think, thought it was mostly just symbolic at the national level. 
And, and John Sh Sherman thought this was a fantastic idea. He can cleanse his name of being a pro-monopolist by having his name on this antitrust statute. And the term trust is anachronistic. It was, you know, we, it, 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 uh, it, was, it was the legal form that a lot of these big companies took. But it, it was considered to be an anti, you know, supposedly an anti-monopoly uh, piece of legislation. And so John Sherman didn't write the statute. It was written by uh, uh, Senator Edmonds from Vermont. Uh, Sherman wasn't really all that interested in the statute, except insofar it was, as it would shield him from accusations of being a pro-monopolist. And so if it's the case, as a lot of people today falsely claim, that the Congress in 1890 was, was uh, concerned about the alleged monopolization of the American economy back then, a couple of things would be true that are not true. One thing that would be true is that we would, ob we would observe, if we looked at the prices that consumers were paying up to the enactment of the Sherman Act or the state antitrust statutes, we would observe prices rising because that's what monopolists do. They raise prices and restrict output. We would also observe Congress being very concerned about the welfare of consumers. Well, if we look, my, my, my former colleague here at George Mason, Tom DiLorenzo, wrote a very famous paper in 1985 he was the first to actually look at what happened to these prices of these alleged of, of the products sold by these allegedly monopolized industries. Lo and behold, the prices were falling and falling faster than was the fall in the general price level at the time. It was a period of deflation. And the outputs of these industries was rising at an enormous rate, faster than the output was rising for the economy as a whole. So output was rising, prices were falling. This is highly inconsistent with monopolization. And, and, and also, if Senator John Sherman were, as he is portrayed today by a lot of naive people, as a great friend of the consumer, then why only three months later, in October of 1890, did he support enactment of the McKinley Tariff? Because everybody knew that the McKinley Tariff would, would raise prices. And that's why John, that's why John Sherman uh, 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 supported the tariff, because he knew it would raise prices. He, he, was, he was a protectionist. He wanted to help uh, 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 politically powerful business people. He wasn't interested in helping consumers. He was a politician who was interested in helping helping special interest groups. So that is about as, even though it wasn't very short, that's about as short as I can make the thumbnail sketch of the, of the early history of, of, of U.S. antitrust legislation. No, but you highlighted something very important, which I, something I wanted to get to, is that how antitrust regulation and its justification has evolved. We usually think of monopoly power as firms raising prices, but at the time, it was to prevent predatory pricing. For example, rival competitors attempting to lower the prices to the benefit of the com consumers, but in, so in effect, it was a protectionist measure for producers rather than consumers. That's right. But it leads to another important By the way, economists, economists of the era uh, uh, didn't like the antitrust statutes. They, they were not friends of it. Economists on the left opposed it because they, the, the, the sense then was that, well, we, we rational economy has big firms, and so they predicted that you know the economy would grow in these big firms, and they could be then taken over by the government and socialized. Sensible economists understood that freedom of contract and competition were keys to protecting the consumer, and that the antitrust statutes would interfere with uh, the experimentation that takes place in the market process with different kinds of contractual arrangements and different kinds of industrial organizations. That's very interesting because. What you mentioned is how classical liberal economists at the time were opposing the tariff precisely because of the monopolistic tendency it could create. Mm -hmm. But by the mid-20th century, there was this intellectual transition, you might say, 
where you might say the tools of economics, which had been at one time provided the, an understanding of the workings of a market economy, became, you might say, the, in, the intellectual legitimization of antitrust policy. And I'm referring to something that is known today as the structure conduct performance paradigm. Uh, can you talk a little bit about what that paradigm is in the study of industrial organization? And who were the key figures that, that, that gave rise to this paradigm? And uh, what policy has it uh, implications did it have for antitrust policy? The structure conduct performance paradigm grew directly out of the theory of perfect competition, which of course came to be formed in the 1920s, really came to be finalized, uh, ironically enough, by uh, Joan Robinson and even more so by Edmund, Edward Chamberlain in the 1930s. Uh, who, you know, they, they wrote books on imperfect competition and, and the oddly named monopolistic competition of, of, of Chamberlain. And uh, this was a very static view of competition. Ec economics by this time uh, had, had, economists had lost sight of the process nature of an economy. And they became more and more enamored of equilibrium conditions. And so you, 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 you eliminate uncertainty, uh, you assume perfect knowledge, and then you can describe these beautiful equilibrium conditions uh, that if they were true, uh, and all the assumptions held in the real world, that would be a, a, almost a divine state for, for consumers. One of the, um, so, you know, as, as you know, Russell, you know, the 1930s was a, it's what GLS Shackle called the years of high theory. Right. And, and so there was a lot, of, a lot of very good theorizing going on. So this is the era in which the, the still familiar cost curves that students in uh, uh, principles and in intermediate microeconomics learn, uh, uh, these are all derived from the works of, of Robinson, uh, Chamberlain, Jacob Viner did some work along these lines. It's all very static, and, and they show the optimal conditions under which given products, uh, so, so that they're given and they're fixed, they're not going to change, and, and they're, they're just out there. Uh, we never learn exactly who decides to invent these products and, and, and innovate them, uh, but they're just out there, and, and the costs are rather objective, and the costs are pretty much exclusively a function of the scale of operation of the firm, meaning how, you know, how, how, how large is the firm, the, the size of the firm then is going to be determined by how much the firm wants to, is, is going to produce. And so it was, you know, the, the, the model was developed that showed that, well, under just the right conditions, uh, if you have uh, industries where the demand is high and the optimal scale of operation is relatively small, then you have a lot of firms in the industry because they'll all they'll, they'll they'll all be operating at their lowest cost, uh, and you'll have a lot of firms competing against each other, and that's fine. That'll keep prices low. It'll look kind of like what the perfect competition model tells us the world should look like if it's going to be perfect. But lo and behold, when we look out in the real world, we don't we don't see industries populated by many firms. We see industries populated by large firm a, a few large firms. And so the structure of the industry is concentrated as opposed to 
uh, uh, having many competitors that put sufficient competitive pressure on each other to keep prices low. So the structure is of the industry is is large and concentrated. So when that structure is that way, the conduct of the firms will reflect that structure. Well, you don't have a lot of competition, so you'll conduct yourself less like a monopol uh, less like a competitor and more like a monopolist. So the performance of the industry will not look anything like a competitive industry. It will perform like a monopolistic industry. Freedom of entry was either assumed away or the conditions uh, that were, were established for it were so ridiculous that economists felt justified in assuming that, well, entry, entry will not, possibility of entry would not discipline existing firms. Um, the main economist associated with the structure conduct performance paradigm was the Berkeley economist Joe Bain, B-A-I-N, in the mid-20th uh, century. Um, and it's a very mechanical uh, uh, notion of the way the economy works, but you're correct. It was the dominant view of economists from, I don't know exactly when, I would say the, 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 the end of World War II through the early, early 1970s. Um, and it, it was virtually, virtually unchallenged. It was taken as an article of faith that, well, you look at the structure of the industry, that's going to determine its conduct, and the conduct is going to determine the performance of the industry, and that structure, unfortunately, in this uh, world of ours with, with, with uh, lumpy investments, uh, that structure is too often going to be such that there are too few firms in the industries to allow those industries to behave competitively. It's funny you mentioned the early 1970s because around that time, uh, for those that are listeners of the podcast, many are familiar with the fact that the South Royalton Conference in Vermont uh, in 1974, which oftentimes, along with the awarding of the Nobel to, to F.A. Hayek, marks the revival of the Austrian School of Economics. And figures like Mises and Hayek were central to reviving this notion of, of competition as a rivalrous process where you focus on the conditions of freedom of entry and exit, not necessarily the structure of that market. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, there was a less known conference that took place that very same year, 1974, uh, known today as the Arley House Conference, which gave birth to, you might say, a counter-revolution yeah. Yeah. to the study of <clears throat> industrial organization, what is known today as the new learning. Can you talk a little bit about what was the new learning? Who were the key figures that that led to the to the the seminal contributions, and why the conference was formed? Yeah, so Early House, which, which, which as you know, is is a conference center just a you know, few miles south of where we are here in in, in Fairfax, Virginia. It's, it's down near Warrington, Virginia. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, the new learning, as it is appropriately called began, though, before 1974. I think an unsung hero in all of this is a man named Aaron Director, who was Milton Friedman's brother-in-law. He was the older brother of, of Rose Director Friedman. Aaron Director was an economist. Early on, he was pretty leftist. Uh, but he winds up teaching at the university. He's an economist teaching at the University of Chicago Law School. And, uh, of course, antitrust is taught. Antitrust has a lot of obvious economic applications. And Director was a good enough economist that he questioned, he, this is, we're talking now in the 40s and 50s, 
he's questioning a lot of this, th these, these uh, unquestioned assumptions that economists are making and lawyers and antitrust lawyers are making about, about uh, 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 industrial performance. So he's teaching students to be critical of the accepted wisdom. One of his students, by the way, was, was Robert Bork, um, who later went on to write one of the great books in, in uh, antitrust uh, uh, lore, The Antitrust Paradox in 1978. Uh, and so Director then founded the Journal of Law and Economics in 1958. And in that journal, starting then, almost every issue there was at least one, usually multiple, articles that challenged the uh, uh, accepted wisdom of mainstream economists about the structure-conduct performance paradigm. You had articles by, uh, one of the most famous ones was by uh, John McGee that busted the myth that, that uh, um, uh, Standard Oil won its dominance through predatory pricing. There's simply nothing to that that story. Right. Uh, you had an article in 1960, I think, by Lester Telser uh, explaining the economic rationale for resale price maintenance, which at the time uh, was and had been long held to be per se illegal by the courts. Uh, you had articles by Harold Demsetz, uh, uh, more empirical articles looking at, at uh, uh, concent concentration ratios, which, I'm, which we'll probably talk a little bit about more about in, in just a moment, um, you had a whole series of articles in the Journal of Law and Economics that were so powerful in both their logic and in their empirics that they simply couldn't be ignored. Um, Yale Brosen, by the way, was another great scholar. He taught at the University of Chicago Business School who wrote, who, who, who looked at uh, uh, accepted antitrust doctrine with an appropriately jaundiced eye. And so um, all these, this research accumulates. You know, so 15 years, after 15 years, um, uh, it's, it's I, I, I wasn't around. I mean, I, I was a child and I wasn't in economics then. But I, I have a sense that sometime in the early 70s, people said, you know, this is, th th we have something here. This is not just one, one or two random articles. This is like a, we're completely rethinking uh, antitrust doctrine. And, 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 and let me say, the courts, uh, 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 because the antitrust obviously is, is litigated in the courts, the courts had come to accept much of the structure conduct performance paradigm. There were some ridiculous Supreme Court rulings on antitrust in the 1950s and 19 and 1960s. Uh, they, they read almost comically today, um, given what we know about economics and, and about antitrust. And so. Uh, uh, under the auspices of the of the Columbia University School of Law, uh, th there was this conference called "Why They Chose Early House." I don't know, but but it, it was an assembly of who's who among uh, in the industrial organization economists of of the era. Um, and uh, the, the the first essay in it is written by the late great Donald Dewey, who was an economics professor at 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 Columbia. I I, I knew Don Dewey toward the end of his life. He was a, he was a great man. Uh, and he was certainly no stark raving libertarian, but he was a first-rate antitrust scholar. And, uh, well, and, and one of the things that uh, Dewey does in his intro is he mentions the work of Dominic Armentano, 
who is an, an, an overtly Austrian-oriented uh, scholar. And unfortunately, Dom Armentano's work, which I think is just superb, uh, it's largely ignored, even today, by, by, by a lot of the, the better antitrust scholars. Donald Dewey told me personally, and he says it in the introduction to the, the collection of papers from the New Learning Conference at Early House, he, he praises Dom Armentano's work as, as, as being in, one of the instrumental, as, at least capturing some of the essential insights of what economists had learned by the early 1970s that um, uh, it was important to allow the economy to experiment with different contractual arrangements, different industrial forms, that, that, that monopoly was almost all, if you, if you found monopoly in the economy, uh, if you looked hard enough, you would find it has nothing to do with private practice. If you truly found a monopoly, you would find some government restriction behind it, getting back to the tariffs as, as, as a form of, 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 of monopoly power. Anyway, uh, the, 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 new, the, the New Learning Conference, in a way, just, just sort of gelled and was the pinnacle of this research that had been going on chiefly in the Journal of Law and Economics, not exclusively, uh, uh, since 19... 1958. And that research continued well into the 1980s. Uh, by the mid-1980s, fortunately, it had an impact, this research did, on, on the courts and on the federal, federal bureaucracies that applied antitrust. And uh, antitrust kind of went dormant, not completely, uh, but it kind of went dormant from the late 1970s up through the 1990s, really, you know, un until the mid part of, you know, until just a few years ago, actually. It's a great triumph of ideas. Um, uh, 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 and, uh, but, as you alluded to a moment ago, these ideas are now lost. We, we, we are traveling back in time very, quite, very fast to this benighted era uh, uh, of the 1950s, the way people thought in the 1950s and 60s about industrial structure and antitrust. Now, you mentioned something very important. Many of the figures that you've just talked about come out of the University of Chicago or the Chicago School of Economics. But one thing that's important to, that I think it's important to note is that antitrust policy to the average person may seem to be cut across ideological lines. Like individuals who are in favor of antitrust they are they are anti-market, and those individuals that are in uh, against antitrust policy, uh, they may be pro-market. But even at the University of Chicago Law School, it's, there wasn't this homogenous agreement on the role of of antitrust. So, in many ways, you could think about the differences in in how economists approach antitrust policy is based on their understanding of economic theory. Yeah. The, the the person I have in mind is, for example, George Stigler, who is regarded as you may say one of the figures, along with Milton Friedman and Gary Becker, of the modern Chicago school. But he had a, an yeah, interesting yeah. Yeah, yeah, understanding yeah. of, of yeah. the role of antitrust regulation. Can you talk about that? Yeah, and so you know, this is one of these one of these instances in which the term Chicago school becomes kind of mis misleading because it, it it refers to very different styles of of of, of thinking when it comes to antitrust. So uh, I think of Harold Demsetz, for example, as being a member of the Chicago School, broadly considered. Uh, and, and Harold Demsetz, although I think he 
believe that, well, okay, it's okay to have antitrust to police against overt price-fixing agreements. Other than that, he was no fan of antitrust. George Stigler is very different. George Stigler thought that antitrust, he says it, he said it in a 1984 interview. He said he thinks antitrust was, is, is, antitrust law is a law very much like uh, laws against murder and theft. Uh, you know, he thought these were fan, fantastic. Um, uh, uh, so you, you're correct that there is, there is no one Chicago view on antitrust. But what is true is that much of the excellent research that led to the new learning, that busted the myth of structure conduct performance, nearly all of that research that got a lot of attention was done by scholars working in the Chicago tradition. Now, let me say a word about the Austrians here. Uh, so some of, the, some of the better scholars working in the Chicago tradition that, that did this, I'm thinking of Harold Demsetz, uh, Armin Alchian, Lester Telser, uh, even later Oliver Williamson, who most people wouldn't think of as, as, as an Austrian. And even Yale Brosen. Oh, Yale Brosen, yes, yes, thank you, yes. Uh, um, you know, at, at the time they're doing their, most of their work, the, the Austrian, there, there was no formal Austrian school any, anymore. Yeah, you know, Israel Curzon was teaching at NYU. And, um, but Don, Donald Dewey, although he was at Columbia and, and Duke before that, he was very much, he was, he was trained in Chicago. He was very much a Chicago economist. These scholars uh, were very Austrian in their approach. They used, the language they used was a little bit different than the language used by Mises and Hayek, but it was in, if you read Demsetz, if you read Dewey, if you read Brosen, if you read uh, John McGee, uh, uh, if you read Robert Bork on the on nature of competition, it's very much. It, it reveals very much an appreciation of the need for entrepreneurial experimentation, uh, the robustness of of entry, potential entry as a disciplining device. Uh, the complexity of the world, thus requiring various subtle sorts of, 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 of various different kinds of uh, contractual arrangements that are, that are all assumed away or overlooked in the simple textbook structure conduct performance models. And so I think the, 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 in the, the, new, the new learning economists, let us call them, although most people would formally classify them, and they too, they themselves would classify themselves as, as affiliated with the Chicago School more broadly. Uh, they were very Austrian in, 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 in their approach. I think had they been a generation younger or had the Austrians had the South Royalton Conference not in 1974 but 1954, I think maybe some of them would be more, uh, uh, would have identified more self-consciously as, as Austrians. I think one of the most important things that these figures that you're talking about revived is that the only form of competition is not just price competition, that competitors compete on all these various sorts of margins, and it's those margins Which that George are... Stigler, ne I mean, he, he, in one sense he got it, but, but he, he, George Stigler could never for some reason break away from the perfect competition model as the ultimate standard. Right. I'm right. sorry I interrupted you. No, no, no. It, it, this, is a, uh, this is right on the point, which is that rather than thinking in terms of just price being the only measure of the extent to which an industry or a market is is competitive. Well, we have to look at these non-price margins. Yes. For example, individuals in the structured conduct performance paradigm might regard as 
advertising as being manipulative and therefore creating monopoly power. But these figures that you're talking about, they resonate with the Austrians and say, look, in a world in which there's imperfect information, advertising actually creates relevant information about relevant competitors, relevant substitutes, and as a disciplining uh, has a disciplining effect on monopoly power, and, and, and thus advertising is is essential to to entry. Uh, if, if you're if you're going to compete with an uh, with a with a, a, a well known incumbent, consumers have to know about you, and they have to know about the deals you're offering and how your product differs and is better than the the product offered by the incumbent. And that keeps that advertising then keeps the incumbent more honest, and it and uh, because it allows it it, it facilitates entry. Which, of course, is the ultimate uh, uh, discipline device. Let me let me quickly say one word about a, a man we haven't yet mentioned. Please, but, uh, uh, Joseph Schumpeter. Yeah. Uh, who, uh, you know, is not an Austrian in the standard sense, but he, you know, he did attend with Mises Bombavirk's uh, seminar. Uh, uh, but Schumpeter's Capitalism, Socialism, and Democracy, Book Two of that. I still believe that that is the sing- that contains the single best and clearest description of the nature of capitalist competition that I've ever read. And in that, Schumpeter explicitly, actually I don't know if he uses the term perfect, I can't remember if he actually uses the term perfect competition anymore, but he explicitly uh, goes after the model of perfect competition. Because this is, this is just he didn't use the term bogus, but, this, but that's what he. This is just bogus. This is just nonsense. This is this is not capture capitalist reality. If if competition in the real world looked like this, we wouldn't like it. That's not the kind of competition we want. We want competition in which you get new products. We want competition in which you get dramatic reductions in product in in in, uh, uh, in production costs caused by innovation in the methods of production and distribution, and 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 it's the it should be it was, it was quite clear that the only source of monopoly in a capitalist market is government restriction, uh, and, and not not large size, not advertising, not predatory pricing, none of this nonsense that a lot of the structure conduct performance people had latched themselves onto. I want to go now back full circle to where we had began. I had mentioned what our or what is the basis, you might say, not the only basis, but one of the renewed reasons for antitrust regulation with respect to the rise of, of platform economies. Now, Mark, Ta- Mark Twain was once quoted as, as saying that history doesn't repeat itself, but it often does rhyme. And in, in recent years, the earlier arguments uh, against antitrust regulation that were provided by some of the figures that we talked about including the uh, figures from the Austrian school, but also from the Chicago school, those economists at, at UCLA, but also the Virginia School of Public Choice, for example, Gordon Tullock talking about rent-seeking and, and, and how regulations that are oftentimes produced in the public interest actually are is in fact predicated because of the time and effort spent by producers to capture monopoly privileges, just like what you discussed earlier. But now it just seems as if these arguments that were once stated, that you outlined in in great detail, no longer seem to be relevant with respect to platform economies. So can you explain a little bit about what that term means? What what are platform economies? 
why are they perceived to exercise monopoly power and just and therefore justifying uh, antitrust regulation? So I, I, I think you, 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 I think you've already identified what's meant by platform economy. So you think of something like Facebook. Uh, Facebook provides a platform on which its users can communicate with each other, you send pictures of their, you know, what they had for dinner and send pictures of their vacation. Uh, and so a, a lot of what is actually supplied, you know, the actual detailed substance of what is, 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 is consumed as a result of those companies' existence is supplied by, by the users. So the users use it as a platform to share information with each other. Um, and by the very nature of that kind of, of product, uh, the greater the number of people who are on the platform, the greater the number of, the, the, the more valuable that platform is to any one user. If it's just you and me in the platform, it's not very valuable. But if it's you and me and 10 billion of our, be or 10, 10 million of our best friends, uh, then it's very valuable because we communicate you know, with, with lots of people. And therefore so, it has this network effect. It has, it, it has, it has a network effect. Uh, but but and so look of course the details of the, the the technical details, the contractual details, the economic details, the the cost structure details of of Facebook and Twitter and and Google differ from the details of the U.S. auto industry in the 1950s, which differed from the details of of uh, the the kerosene refining industry of the 1890s. Uh, but but I, I think these details should not mis mislead us. Uh, what is common throughout all this history are n new forms of enterprise, and when they're new, they're unfamiliar. These new forms of enterprise uh, disrupt older ways of doing business, and so the older businesses that are harmed, they don't like it. And a lot of people are just that you know, we, we, a lot of people are just fearful of new things. Well, I'm not. Oh, what what is this? I'm I I was accustomed to driving to the Sears store when I wanted to buy something. I oh, this Amazon thing. This is weird. This is strange. Um, uh, history is littered with fears that the new and the big are going to somehow take over the world and crush us all. It hasn't happened. I see no reason to believe that the fears expressed today about Facebook and Amazon and Google are any different than the fears that were expressed in the 1880s about John D. Rockefeller's Standard Oil and, and Gustav Swift's meatpacking company in the 1930s. I don't know how many listeners will be familiar with this. In the 1930s, the great fear in America was the A&P supermarket. It was, it, was the, it, was the, it was the first and actually one of the few nationwide supermarket chains. And uh, 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 the Robinson-Patman Act, part of the justification for passing the Robinson-Patman Act in 1936, it was one of the follow-on antitrust statutes, was to protect Americans against the concentration of the grocery industry from the A&P supermarket. And what was A&P's great crime? Well, my gosh, it was lowering prices and it was making uh, grocery shopping much more convenient for, for consumers. Um, Obviously, today we don't worry about supermarkets being well. I don't know. People were, well, I guess, until recently, they worried about Walmart. Uh, so, the 
the the details, the names of the companies all change. The fears remain the same. I see no reason to 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 uh, uh, second guess history. History provides no examples that I'm aware of in which a firm unprotected by special government privileges gains monopoly power in a way that it abuses consumers for any length of time at all. The minute a firm starts doing that, profit-hungry entrepreneurs sweep in, this is the market process, and compete that company either into being a better servant of consumers or out of, out, out of business. So you talked a lot about renewed fears, but do you see these, this also as a return or an intellectual return is the basis for renewed calls for regulation of platform economies. Does it have any intellectual uh, basis behind it? Do you see a, a trend towards a revival of the structured conduct performance paradigm? That's why oh, I meant that. Oh, yes. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, certainly the structured conduct performance paradigm is coming back. Um, it's got some additional curly cues to it. Uh, but that's because people have forgotten the new learning. Uh, it, it, the structured conduct performance paradigm is being revived, and, and, uh, and along with it, active antitrust intervention, not because we've discovered something new about the economy, but because we've forgotten uh, what we have learned about the economy in the past and what we've learned about economics in the past. So these people now in Joe, Joe Biden's um, uh, uh, administration, these antitrust warriors, Lena Khan, for example, at the, at the FTC, uh, in fact, she, she, she was only born in the 1980s. Uh, she was born long after this, the, new, the new learning had, 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 had come of age. Um, uh, and, 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 and let me not be unfair to Democrats here. There are a lot of people on the Republican right who are also uh, all, all hot and heavy now for active antitrust enforcement. And they're just as economically ignorant as people on the left. Uh, the language they use is a bit different, and their, their motives may be a bit different, but it's all the same. One thing we didn't mention, it, 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 we should take a moment to mention it, it's not just the case. So, so, so let's, let's give the structure conduct performance model at least one star, because it did care about consumers. It did accept the consumer welfare standard. Right. <coughs> Excuse me. It did accept that the standard for judging the performance of an industry is how well it served consumers, not how well it protected e existing businesses. Um, a lot of people today, on the left and the right, want to reject the consumer welfare standard. They say, well, you know, that's just, consumer welfare is only one of the, of the goals that the, the economy uh, should, should promote. There are other goals too, like pr producer welfare. We, we, we don't want to make producers' lives uh, unduly uncertain with all this competition. Um, and uh, that, that is a very pernicious and very dangerous way uh, to think about matters. It, but it does, however, I will give it this, it is more true to the original intention behind the antitrust statutes. The original intention behind the antitrust statutes was not consumer welfare. It was to protect producers. Uh, uh, it was a protectionist measure, and so uh, uh, the the we we, we sh one of the, two of the great things that happened with the new learning was to nail in place consumer welfare 
as the standard for judging uh, uh, the economy's performance. And again, that it didn't have to work too hard because the structured conduct performance people accepted that as well. And secondly, it nailed in place the recognition that the economy is a dynamic process uh, for which we need a lot of experimentation and we can't just rely upon simple models to tell us what is and what isn't and isn't competitive. All, all this learning now has is, is, is gone away. There's a rejection of the consumer welfare standard, an explicit rejection of the consumer welfare standard. These people uh, reject it uh, and think they are very profound in, in, in doing so. I don't think there's any, anything profound about uh, endorsing an economy that promotes waste and promotes the interests of producers uh, basically giving a monopoly power uh, and, and they're and they're ignorant of of the dynamic nature of market forces and of the complexity of the economy into which they propose to intervene so I just want to conclude with a following question it may be one of despair but it could be on one of hope depending on how you answer it we talked a lot about the interplay between ideas and and interests for example that in one sense uh, antitrust regulation, the, the regulation monopolies have been motivated by special interest groups. But at the same time, the, the power of ideas plays an important role. Yes. And I just wanted to see what your take is about this interplay between ideas and interest in our, in our understanding of, of what is monopoly power and the policy implications that follow. What, what, what I, I don't want to put you on the spot, but what, if, if the, Lessons of history have taught us anything. What can we learn, and what might be a, you might say, a prediction for the future? Well, well, uh, the 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 research that I mentioned earlier that was done mostly in the Journal of Law and Economics and giving rise to the you know the the, the new learning conference at Airlie House. Those that research, as I said, did have a huge impact. On antitrust policy, um, uh, the impact—I I'm not sure how much of that impact was through directly through public opinion, probably very little—but it had a huge impact on the uh, on on judges, particularly federal judges, uh, who basically became embarrassed to uh, uh, be the economic illiterates that they had been before the New Learning exposed. Uh, uh, the earlier views as being economically illiterate. But look, you know, you and I are in the idea business, and uh, I, I don't think it's self-delusion to believe that uh, ideas matter. Um, I think they matter greatly. No one person is going to, no one school is going to have any significant impact in one direction or another on public opinion. But as Bob Tolleson, my late colleague here at George Mason, said many years ago, you, I think you've heard Pete Betke relate Tolleson saying this. Uh, Bob had this delightful South Carolina accent. He said, uh, and he was telling me once, Don, we're all part of the equilibrium. And what Bob meant by that is uh, we, we throw our, our ideas out there in as compelling and clear a way as we can. Though our ideas compete with the ideas of others. Uh, and then it's, it's sort of like a dialectical process. You get a synthesis of ideas. Uh, some people will heed them, and public opinion will be affected as a result. It might not be detectable. It certainly won't be 
in a direction as complete as any of us would like. Uh, but we have to believe we're doing that. And so in, 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 the, anti, in the antitrust sphere, uh, we just have to go back to we. I mean, those of us who I believe better understand the nature of a competitive market economy and the dangers of antitrust intervention have to go back to work. And even though it had been, you know, just basically repeat a lot of the same lessons uh, that were, were taught and now are lost from the 1950s, uh, 60s, and 70s, and 80s, um, apply these to the new industries, uh, be very patient in explaining these ideas, uh, not feel uh, reluctant to repeat them just because, you, well, you know that, you know, Robert Bork said that uh, in 1958, why should we say it now again? Well, because people have forgotten it. And so we, I think we are obliged as, as scholars who work in this area to take the threat of the uh, the Neo Brandeisians, as they're called, after Leo Leo Brandeis, uh, that's a, it's a serious threat. Uh, if it gains more traction, it will do real damage to the American economy and hence to the American people and to the global economy. And so it's it's up to we we have to do what we can to resist it. Don, I want to thank you very much for your time. This was a very interesting conversation. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to the Hayek Program podcast. To learn more about the research, scholars, and work of the Hayek Program, visit hayek.mercatus.org. For more information about graduate student fellowship opportunities for students at Mason as well as at universities across the globe, please visit students.mercatus.org. We hope you recommend students to our programs or consider applying yourself.